It's me, Alex, and tonight I have returned to the show, uh, author and um, all around swell fella, uh, Brian Gadawa. Hello, sir. Great to be here, Alex. Story, just call me a storyteller. Storyteller. I like it. And uh, yeah, the story that you just put out, the novel, is uh, The Dragon King. Yeah, The Dragon King. Um, it's the start of a new series. I just finished my last series, Chronicles of the Nephilim, which is about eight novels. Not about, it actually is eight novels. And um, in that series, um, I told, I basically, my, my, my idea was to retell all the stories in the Bible that had giants and or watchers in them. And watchers are, if for anybody who's, who's read the literature, watchers are these sort of divine heavenly beings from God's heavenly council, divine council, um, some of who've, who fell and come to earth and, and most of them who've stayed around God and his throne. But nonetheless, these sons of God is what they're called, are watchers. And these watchers are sort of the uh, spiritual powers that are at play that the Bible reveals or gives us little glimpses, not very many, but little glimpses throughout uh, some of its books. Like, for instance, in the book of Daniel, we read about the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece fighting while the nations are fighting, and those princes are actually spirit, these spiritual watcher beings. And so that was, you know, that was the beginning in, in Chronicles of the Nephilim, and of course there's a lot more to that, but in this new series called Chronicles of the Watchers, I've carried over what I call the Watcher paradigm. And what that is, is it's based on um, a, uh, a passage in the Bible, well, not just one, but uh, one passage can describe it, called uh, Deuteronomy 32. I call it the Deuteronomy 32 worldview. And it's the, the basically the notion that um, at the Tower of Babel, God spread the nations on the earth and uh, when he did so, mankind was so evil and uh, didn't want to fo follow God so that God gave them over and said, okay, if you're not going to follow me, then I'm going to give you over to under the authority of the demonic fallen watchers, you know, the sons of God who fell. You're going to be under their authority. And so the pagan nations in the Bible worldview, the pagan nations are under this authority and um, meanwhile, God remains the authority over Israel, his people. And then, of course, you know, he claims the, the territorial land of, of Canaan for his own. And so it's this notion of these territorial authorities that are behind the earthly authorities. And I carry that paradigm over into the Chronicles of the Watchers um, to sort of expand that notion into other stories. And this particular story, not, not necessarily biblical stories, but they can be. But this particular one, the first one, um, which is, you know, pretty much a standalone novel, but, you know, it'll be part of a series, but they, you won't need to, to read them as a series. And The Dragon King is basically the story of the first emperor of China. 
And I bring in it with my co-author, uh, Charlie Wen. We bring into that, that story this um, a little bit of a fantastical edge. It's heavily researched with history and mythology, but it's also um, carries over this watcher paradigm to sort of make sense of the rise and fall of kingdoms. Yeah, it was, it was an interesting take. I was I was kind of trying to figure out when you when you sent the copy to me. I was like, how does this fit in? I'm a little like we're we're in China now. That's I don't know. I mean, I guess the Nephilim can you know fly or whatever. But uh, yeah, that was uh, I don't not to give away too much plot point. But yeah, I, just, I thought that was a that was a cool way to kind of connect the two without being so you know dependent on you know. It's not like you have to read nine books at this point. You know, it's standalone. yeah, yeah, exactly. And you know this this watcher paradigm also is is the connecting point between the novels of the new series which means you know in terms of the spiritual the supernatural principalities and powers the supernatural realm has their sort of historical goals you know and how they're going to uh you know manipulate earthly kingdoms to achieve their ends right but the actual on the ground earthly stories are still going to be, you know, the strongest element of 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 the story, and and thus, this first novel, which, like I say, is pretty much a departure from the other ones, um, w- was actually inspired. I-, I wasn't going to write the Chronicles of, of the Watchers. This was actually just a story that my friend Charlie and I were were talking about writing, and as we developed the story, we I realized, oh my gosh. This fits in, you know, as I did the research and found out these connections, these, these very interesting connections, I, I thought, you know, Charlie, this fits into this Watcher paradigm, and that's kind of how, how it ended up becoming part of the series. But when he first came to me, uh, Charlie uh, is actually uh, pretty famous. He, he's the co-founder and head of the visual department at Marvel Studios, or at least he was up until just recently. Uh, so he developed all the look and visuals that you see in all the Marvel movies, whether it's all the way up to Ant-Man, I think it was. And so whether it's Captain America, Iron Man, Avengers, all that, Thor, all those guys, he worked on the visual development of those of those movies. So this guy really has great experience, and he's a great storyteller too. So um, he came to me one, one day after reading my novels and said, you know, Brian, you know, let's work on a project together. We're talking about that. And he says, I've always wanted to tell a story uh, that comes from my own heritage of the first emperor of China. And he said, particularly as a Christian, you know, we, uh, there's, a, there's some interesting connections that we might be, be able to, to play off of. And one of them was the fact that, um, you know, if you, you got to understand a little bit of the history of China. And if, if you look back into ancient China around the year 220 BC, the, uh, around that that century, that decade, uh, before that time period, China was divided up into like five warring states. And for a thousand years, they just warred and never got anywhere. But when they finally had the first emperor, he actually unified the nation, unified the, the language, the weights and measures, you know, brought, brought in that sort of universal peace. Uh, he's the one that built the, the Great Wall of China, he didn't start it, but he basically built the bulk of it. And he's also um, the emperor who built those terracotta statues of, of, of thousands of soldiers that were buried in the ground in China that you see on documentaries, you know. It's like, who was – this was the guy who did that because he created those as sort of guardians of him for the afterlife. Um, so this guy 
this guy was a fascinating guy, but he also happened to be a tyrant. And so in the midst of bringing that, about that unity, as tyrants often do, yeah, they can unify the country underneath the authoritarian or totalitarian you know, dictates of a monster, which is often what happens with tyrants, right? And uh, he, he was that way with, with, the, uh, with the country. And um, so my buddy said, you know, hey, look, uh, right around the time period of this, this emperor, he brought in all these changes. One of the changes he brought in was that before this time period, the ch- ancient Chinese used to worship one god. And they called him Shangdi. And so Shangdi would be sort of like the same thing as us saying God. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's the reference to the creator. And so uh, they worshiped this single God. And not only that, but they worshiped him, worshiped him without images. Now, the reason why that's really imp- important is because at, in the ancient world, all the nations worshiped a pantheon of gods of some kind. And they all had images. They all, all had these idols or images that they worshipped their deities through, except for one nation, and that was Israel. Now, it's so interesting that in the Far East, totally disconnected from them, you have this other nation that's worshipping a single god with no images. Is there a connection there? Well, the other thing that, that he told me was um, – that the, the ancient Chinese also claimed to have their origins back in the Tower of Babel. And um, the Tower of Babel was the notion where, you know, God spread out the nations and the languages all across the earth. And they claimed that they, they came from that, from that dispersion. And that they, so they kept the original thoughts and ideas, but, you know, they were still corrupted to some degree over the generations and over the centuries, but less so than the rest of of the world. And so this is a really fascinating, interesting connection to the Bible. And the other thing he said was, you know, the dragon, the notion of the dragon in China, of course, is ubiquitous now, but before this first emperor, it was an image that was used, but it wasn't universal you know, and it wasn't universally used or even universally positive in China until this emperor. And from within the biblical paradigm, of course, the dragon or the serpent is a negative image that comes from the garden, the fall of man. So we started to see some very fascinating connections uh, from our own worldview. And that's where I said, you know, Charlie, I go, this is really a fascinating story. If we, if we tell this journey, but, but, let's tell it within the watcher paradigm because there it had that connection you know and that was sort of the beginning of of the gestation of the story but there's just so much more to come that that blew our minds that that opened the doors uh to what soon became the dragon king yeah that was a pretty so kind of i guess it's kind of off page on that but how kind of convinced are you of this you know off fiction book page like do you, do you think there is a any kind of actual connection, or is it just you know uh, two cultures coming up with similar ideas? Personally, um, I look as a fiction writer, as a storyteller, and a dramatist. Um, my my goal is to tell a great story, and to be faithful to the spirit of that which of the truth, right? And so, I use a lot of fiction fiction elements. I draw from legends. But I try to draw from from legends and traditions and such as part of the 
you know, the, the heritage of, of creativity, right? Um, my own personal view is I believe there's always some truth in all of these legends and all of these, these, you know, possible connections, but you know, there are two ways, there are always multiple ways of interpreting the facts. So the, the facts come first and the facts are that, um, the Chinese people, actually, there are many Chinese Christians who make the argument today uh, uh, the Chinese people will say, oh, you know, the Bible and Christianity is a Western religion and we're Eastern, so they reject it. But the Chinese Christians are actually making the argument, no, it's not a Western religion. Because if you go back to Shangdi, it's actually very similar to what was in the, in the Bible before we even had the Bible. And, and like I said, you know, this connection to the Tower of Babel, I know some people think it's just a myth story, but it, it certainly is a story that tells the origins um, and connections of all the nations on the earth. And, um, and so I do believe in the, the biblical paradigm, the biblical watcher paradigm of spiritual authorities over the nations. What that really looks like, I don't know because I don't see the spiritual world. And so I use the fantasy element to sort of depict it in a way that can communicate the truth of it. Um, but I do play, I do find the facts and find the traditions and then I try to, you know, make sense of them through my storytelling. And that's pretty much what storytellers do. So, yeah, to answer, that's, that's the long roundabout answer. But in short, I believe in the truth of these connections. But how and, and how they're all connected, uh, you know, we don't, all, we don't always know. Yeah, that's, it's just a, it's a thing I always wonder about is that, is it that kind of Joseph Campbell Jungian thing where it's, you know, the kind of just the brain, our human brain comes up with these certain kind of archetypal stories and that's why you see similarities or is there a deeper, you know, further past thing where it actually comes from a, a point of truth. You know, there actually was a, you know, a yeah. dispersion of language. Yeah. And it's that, you know, there's a balancing act on both sides. It could be a combination of both. It could be, you know, neither. It could be, yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, if we're really honest and, and that means I'm whatever side you're on and, and I, and this goes for Christians as well, or people who believe in the Bible as well, you do have to be honest and face the fact that maybe the way the Bible is, is communicating history or communicating its truth is not as historical as you may think or want it to be as a modern person, because we tend to project our, or import our own biases onto the text. And so we just need to be open to the fact that it, it, you know, the Bible claims to be, you know, communicating a truth, but the, but what, it, how it really does so may be different than what we expect. So therefore, yes, I believe that we need to be open to understanding uh, sometimes combinations of both. But look, if we're all really honest, uh, let's give an example of the flood. You know, the, the fact, the facts are that uh, there are Noahic type uh, descriptions of of flood stories all around the world. And it's usually, they're very, very similar. So, you know, if you, if to the secular mindset, they will, they assume their own religious view, which is evolution uh, is accounts for all connections to things. So therefore, when they see a connection like that, they automatically assume based on their own bias, well, therefore it must have evolved out of it. So therefore they either borrowed these stories from each other, you know, and that kind of a thing and it evolved. And that's certainly a legitimate possibility in the strict realm of possibilities. Uh, But that's not, that's not the only um, answer or, or description because in point of fact, if something actually happens factually in history, then of course, many nations are going to write about that same fact and they're going to have their own spin on it. And, you know, we can, we can, 
find tons of examples of this when, whenever nations interact. And, you know, in the Bible, there's perfect cases of this. You know, you, we have examples of interactions with Egypt and with Hittites, and we have both the biblical side of the story and the pagan side of the story. And they do have different spins on it, but they both had the same fact in history, and they're both giving their spin on it. And so, interestingly, uh, connected to this um, is is something that I had actually read about before I, we started talking about this story that made me interested in wanting to tell the story. And that was, I read some other books about these Chinese people who have um, looked into and studied the ancient version of the Chinese language. And the Chinese language is actually pictographic. And so... In a very and, and and it's changed a little bit since the ancient times, of course, but uh, so basically, their 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 words are like pictures. See, and so uh, I read some books and stuff that explained how there are many words in the Chinese language that actually reflect content from the Book of Genesis, thousands thousands of years before any contact with the West or the or the Bible at all. I mean, before the Bible was even written. So you, you know, some examples of this are uh, the word for ship um, is a boat with eight people in it, and the Noah story had eight survivors. Um, the the word for tower in the ancient Chinese language is a very similar storyline to the Tower of Babel. Other things like the word for tempter is like two trees in a garden with a snake. You know, so there's these, these connections to the biblical story long before they had actual connections to the Bible. And this, again, is a, a factual thing that can be explained. You know, you can explain it in different ways. But, um, uh, you know, as, uh, I, I think that it just simply reflects that, yeah, this, this is, these things occurred. And then the Chinese people you know, migrated and lost connection with the West altogether, and they developed their own sort of interpretation of what really happened, you know. And over the generations and centuries, uh, things, you know, whatever, you, you, you have your spin. So that, that was another fascinating connection to uh, this spiritual storyline that I, as, as a person interested in Bible stories and Bible connections type of thing, I found that fascinating. And so we wanted to explore that a little, but not in a way that was sort of like um, uh, like the Chronicles of Nephilim where it's all Bible-oriented because we did want to tell this story, this Chinese story, because it was a fascinating story in and of itself. And um, But what, how, what, how we made the connection was we thought, okay, we want to tell this story of the, the Chinese uh, be beginnings of the Chinese empire. But we also want to be interesting to Western readers as well, not just Eastern. And so we said, well, what was going on at this time in the West? And this was the time in 200 BC was around the time of Antiochus the Great, who was the Seleucid uh, Greek king over Mesopotamia and the Levant, and which was basically Israel and such, and Canaan and such. And um, these, this was one of the, you know, when Alexander the Great conquered the world and he died, his kingdom was split up into four different family of, of rulers, and the Seleucids were one of them, and they ended up becoming one of the more powerful ones along with the Ptolemies. And so, um, so I found out Antiochus the Great is over there, and he was king over Babylon. And Babylon was 
a dying, you know, it was, it was, a, it was kind of like Detroit, you know, it was still around, but it was a dead, it was a more, a, more of a dead city of, of the rem- remembrance of the past. And if you, if you know your history of that time period, this was several hundred years after the Jews were in slavery in Babylon. They, uh, they left, uh, Babylon, uh, King Cyrus uh, of Persia allowed them to leave and go back to their land. So Babylon was still around. They still had the Magi, and the Magi were sort of like sorcerers or or sci- it's a combination of magic and science and all this. And they were the ones that were taught by Daniel, the prophet, when he was there. And you know, you read the book of Daniel, you find out, wow, he was very influential, and even so much so that that. All the way up to the time of Christ, the Magi were looking for the Messiah. And that's where we read in the Gospels where the Magi come from Babylon. They're looking for the Messiah, see? So there's this interesting storyline connection of the Magi and Babylon that, and, and Daniel. And we, we come into this time period, and I thought, wow, this would be fascinating if we, if we you know, we kind of came up to the conclusion of, well, let's have someone in the West, uh, what a Greek warrior, journey over to the east, and that way we can see the east through the western eyes and, and sort of have a cultural clash, of, so to speak, you know, but not in a way that was sort of, you know, uh, the east is bad or the west is bad. It's more like there's good and bad of both, but uh, there's something higher, a higher, more transcendent truth than all these cultures, you know, that, that unites them all. So the, the log line that we kind of came up with that, that explains the journey is um, it's, it's 220 B.C., the ancient Western Empire is crumbling, right? That's over in Babylon and Mesopotamia. It's crumbling, falling apart. So in a desperate bid to save his kingdom, his throne, the Greek king over Babylon sends his son, a dishonored warrior, into the mysterious land of the Far East to capture a mythical creature that will give him absolute power, a dragon. And that's where the whole dragon theme comes in because, of course, you know, we, you know, we know about... Um, about those stories over in China, but it's interesting because even the Chinese version of the dragon is different than the version of the dragon in the West. So this, this sort of East meets West um, theme is something that we really wanted to develop and, and, and explore along, along with other, you know, other fantastical elements, but at the same time, staying true to the basic historical, you know, storyline, everything that happens in the story basically happened, you know, and I have, I, we put a little spin on it, but um, you learn a lot about what really happened in that time period. Let's put it that way. Yeah, yeah. No, there's nothing. There's nothing outside of while while reading it. You know, coming from a more secular side than 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 you are. Nothing sprang to me. I was like, yeah, this all this completely fits in with my knowledge of of the history of the time. This uh, a story that totally could work, which was which was nice because it's always it's always a. Uh, you know, not a danger, but it's, you're like slightly hesitant and, and I've had you on before, so it's not, it was, uh, I wasn't so bad this time, but you're as a little, as a more secular person reading something that may have a religious tone to it. They're like, oh, this could be over the top. And it's like, oh good. It's not. Yay. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I, I, I hear you. And that's, that was our goal because Charlie and I come from the movie background. So our actual idea was first to, to write this as a script, but we soon realized we need to get our own version out there. Cause you know, in Hollywood, basically you come up with a great script, they'll buy it and rape it, you know? And we're just like, you know, we yeah. had we had so many cool ideas we wanted to get down. So we thought, let's get it as a book first, but we wanted to write it like a movie. But in thinking of the, in those terms, we wanted to be a little bit more universal this time. And I, I, sometimes, I sometimes describe it as Raiders of the Lost Ark in China, 
you know, because it kind of has some of those elements to it, you know. Oh, totally. If, yeah. I, without giving too much away, but uh, and that's kind of that's kind of how we saw it, and we wanted to tell the story that way. Yeah, no, it's it running that way. I was actually thinking it would it, it was kind of makes for good uh, script material. And then uh, uh, my mistake, well, actually it worked out well as I looked up your co-writer. I'm like, oh, he's a guy that's very influential in really big movies that I've seen like all of. <laughs> oh, now this is this is making sense to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he should really be the one talking because he'd be the one who would who would draw a better audience than me. But uh, Charlie's uh, more focused on um, his his own. He's starting a new company right now, and and. Uh, you know, so we basically developed the uh, intellectual property get together. Then I wrote the novel, and you know, we're going to try to sell it, maybe get it made as a movie and, and such. And and uh, but uh, as the novelist, I I basically wrote the novel. Yeah, it's good. You know, good person to hook up with. I mean, that's a yeah. that's a great name to have on. That's a great name to have on a on a book cover. I know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you don't get much larger movie franchises than what Marvel's doing these days. So yeah, absolutely. You know, so here's uh, I kind of you know going a little bit more of the historical side of things the one part I, I don't get and it is and it's unfair of me to ask you but you're on the show and it's kind of the part of the book <laughs> how come the so the tower of babel this part of that i never understood the tower of babel you know god gets mad because they're building a big tower they all speak the same language why do the jews get like preferential treatment <laughs> like because i mean it presumably they were all as kids back then you know because they're yeah. all speaking in one language what were the, what was their thing? And I don't mean that to be like anti-Semitic. I just mean no, if, it, no, if it was the if it was the nation next door, I'd be asking the same question. Just, sure, yeah. sure. And you know, and by the way, I do come from the perspective that uh, you know you don't have to believe the Bible was historically true, even particularly in the primeval history. You know, I I believe that, like I said earlier, I I believe that the way they're writing is not necessarily the way we write history. So I don't. I, you don't have to believe it's literally true. Like we understand history, it could be just their way of describing, um, you know, how ideological myths, as they call them, you know. Um, and I, I say that just, you know, so that people can can appreciate, you know, storytelling is not, you know, this this demarcation of history and myth and all that. It just didn't exist in the ancient world, man. I mean, they yeah. they just they enveloped it all because they saw. Life and reality as being a you know sort of a living thing with spirits and gods and stuff and you know our our modern scientific mindset um, sure there's there's been many adva- many advancements but we also lost a uh, you know that 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 mystical wonder about about creation and and, and such but I get, I'm getting off topic sorry about that but um what was I <laughs> what was I talking about? oh no you know it was just a silly question I just oh the Tower of Babel Tower Babel yeah, okay. yeah. so. The Tower of Babel story. Now, the, you know, the basic essence of that is, is you know, and if you understand the ancient, and this is all related to the Dragon King because it does kind of connect up yeah. um, with some historical facts, but the Tower of Babel, uh, you know, there, there are many scholarly arguments about what it was. Nobody's really f- fully sure, but one of the arguments indicates that it, it may be, it may have been the actual Edomenanki that is in Babylon, you know, even to this day, the ruins of it at least, you know, um, and that they're referring to that to that actual tower, but, and of course that tower was a ziggurat. And so the, the notion of building a tower to the heavens is misunderstood by people who don't understand the ancient uh, worldview. That phraseology is, doesn't mean that they think that they were literally building a high tower to reach the top of the sky or something like that. What, what, what that reaching to the heavens meant was that it was an expression of connection to the gods. 
And so in, in, in actual fact, they believed that the, uh, the ziggurats were man-made mountains, they, and they sometimes even called them cosmic mountains, because they believed that the gods basically resided on the mountains. And so then if they built their, their mountain, that the gods would come down to them. And that's why they would build the mountain, and at the top would be the little temple, and that that's where they thought the gods would come down, and they built it like a staircase so that you know, uh, the idea of they could ascend and the, the, to the, to the temple and then the gods would descend and that's where they would commune. See, so, so that's the essence of what that means. Building a tower to the heavens, meaning a connection to the gods. And, uh, you know, this would be an offense to Yahweh as the, you know, monotheistic God of the Bible, you know? And so that's, that's offensive. It's, and it's a kind of a, a reject, not a kind of, it's a literal rejection of the creator God. And, so when he when he says in Deuteronomy 32 that he spread the nations on the earth and um, and he placed them all the pagan nations under the authority of of the the false gods, but he kept Jacob for himself. This of course there were no Jew there were no technical Jews at that time. So what he was doing was a prophetic announcement saying you know he will ultimately choose a people in the future that will be his own people, just like these people have their gods, I'm going to have my own people, and I'm going to have my own land as they have their own land, but um, I'm going to keep them for myself. And so the notion in the Bible, you know, then of course through Abraham is how he chooses them. And, and, but the, that Jewish notion of the chosen people, it very clearly says in the Old Testament that, you know, um, I did not choose you because you were more righteous than nations or more or greater than the other peoples or anything like that, but I chose you out of my grace, out of my love. And so they don't deserve it. And that's part of the notion of understanding God's grace throughout the whole Bible, not just Old, but the New Testaments. But the notion there, so, so the notion there is that there is a sort of a reality to the gods and this isn't you know i mean it's not like it's not necessarily a polytheistic version either because um these gods aren't equal you know in within the biblical worldview these lesser divine beings that sort of become the gods of the people they're worshipped falsely you know and they're actually sort of you know i guess the best way to describe them could be fallen angels you know that kind of a thing and this is the this is the the um, the paradigm that began in Genesis six, where it talks about the sons of God, which are these watchers, came to earth and and they mated with daughters of men and they bore them the giants and the nephilim, and yeah, a lot of people think this is, sounds mythical and some people believe it is, but the basic idea there is in all the religions. This is where you get the notion of the gods coming down and having sex with human beings in all the ancient religions. Is this just, again, is this just a mythical construct that everyone comes up with? Or was there something that actually happened in the past in a supernatural sense that was spun and interpreted through different religions? And, and, and you know, um, yeah, so it has different interp interpretations. Oh, yeah, like so, Zeus was doing it all the time. He was turning into swans and stuff. Like, yeah, yeah there was, exactly. Yeah, those, it shows up everywhere. Yeah, it's... it's oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and again, this is something that I think, you know, um, Christians as well should not be afraid to to admit and and be open minded and and acknowledge these these kinds of similarities. They're often afraid to because it's like no no they want the Bible to be completely different from everything else because that makes that makes it the the most holy book. But no you know there's a lot of commonalities because we are all creatures of our era and of our you know generation. We're affected by our cultures. Even if we, you know, even if we pride ourselves on being different and unique, and we can be, but even if that's the case, we still have a lot of commonalities in the way we think and the imagination that we use and, and such, you know, and the way we write 
our truths. So, you know, these are the kind of things that I like to explore and then, and then, you know, exploit in, in my, in my fiction and my storytelling, because I think that, that, um, you know, this whole sort of imaginative understanding, you know, I think Christians have a bad rap, um, of just sort of being these hyper literalists who just have no creative imagination to them, you know, and, and, and they, they believe that the Bible is just a bunch of literal things and, and, and they're missing a lot of the poetry and the figurative language and all this kind of stuff. And, and that's sort of my, my personal mission is to, to bring that imagination alive and say, no, no, there's a, there's a way to have a supernatural world, uh, worldview, a way of looking at the world, believing in the supernatural. And yeah, there's, there's doubts and there's questions about that and, and fine, but we can, we can tell these stories in a way that's meaningful and truthful and we don't have to be uh, fundamentalists. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Yeah, which I think that's for me. It's the best way to approach it because I I I'm often arguing with uh, with atheists on this point where because atheists bother the hell out of me where it's like you're not getting it either, dude. Like it's yeah. This is this is this is a series of of moralistic tales from a very old culture. You're it's it's not meant to be literal truth. Stop picking out every little thing. It's fine. Yeah, like yeah, exactly. Just, just read the stories. It's pretty obvious. Like God got mad at you for this. That's what they believed in. Just you don't gotta. Get, you don't have to be mad about everything. Like no, yeah. no. Yes, there's logical inconsistencies. It's a four thousand year old book. Of course, there's going to be some weird stuff. Yeah, exactly. And and they're pre scientific, so they're not gonna. You yeah. know, they're gonna have some things wrong in terms of their understanding. You know, but that's the the nature of transcendence, which is I think is what this is really all about. And that's even the the goal in the Dragon King is to bring a sense of transcendence because I, I do believe I don't believe that. All there is to life is just this world and uh, uh, survival of the fittest and power. I believe that those that that the pursuit of power is probably the dominant uh, expression of of mankind and carries with it a corruption and an evil that my stories express and explore. So, for instance, you know, I write a lot about the the pursuit of power. I write a lot about empires. Um, the Dragon King is the story of the first emperor of China. But guess what? And this again, this this comes down to my my worldview is you know look, mankind all over the earth. There's a lot of differences between our cultures, but we're also very much the same. And I see our human nature as being the same. We all have that fallenness from my perspective, and and that we carry that fallenness with us. And therefore, you know, you're going to have men are going to pursue absolute power no matter where they are on the earth. So you've got the king of the you've got the Greek king of the West thinking that that Mesopotamia is the center of the earth or Greece is the center of the earth earth and guess what the chinese people thought that china was the center of the earth everyone thinks that theirs is the center of the earth in fact the the ancient word for china was chanxia which means all under heaven and so they th- felt that their emperor was the emperor or king of all under heaven right so you've got this very you know uh, interesting clash of cultures when I have this Greek Western guy come over and he's introduced to this culture and you know he falls in love with a concubine of the emperor so you've got the forbidden love going on there and but also even the notion of dragons everyone has this notion of dragons but even those are somewhat different in the West you have this notion of dragons as as um, you know like large basically dinosaurs that breathe fire. But in the East, their notion was more like long snakes connected with water. 
Very fascinating. Well, what, where does that difference come from and what's going on? Yet, you know, so I find a lot of these similarities um, in, in, the, in their belief systems as well. Um, and, and, and that's what I'm trying to do is to make that connection from, from my particular perspective. Yeah. Lord, where the, I, I thought Chinese dragons were supposed to be all lucky and like fun and dancing around and stuff. Yeah, and they and they mostly are now, but it's interesting that before this time period, uh, they weren't always. You know, they were you know they were used for different purposes and different symbols, but it became the more the universal symbol around this time of the first emperor. And yeah, so they are a positive image. And so uh, you know, I come from from a biblical view. I say, well, you know what? I I actually believe that they're connect. They're a more negative image in the biblical view. Is the serpent and the dragon? You know, is connected to um, these fallen angels and Satan as the, the chief one. And so I make those kind of connections in, in the story myself. And, and uh, yeah, that's how it comes out. Yeah. Yeah. I know it worked. I mean, narratively, it was just one of those things of like, wait a second, yeah. I've seen, I've seen parades and those, those dragons are quite happy and dancing around. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I also wanted to show that difference too. You know, I have some, I don't want to reveal too many of my little twists in there, but I sort of show their expectations of what a dragon's going to be. And, and like I said, I have a little bit of fantasy element in it. So I bring a little bit, bit of that in there, but I, we still stay true to the actual history of, of this emperor. And uh, so we do bring a little bit of the dragons in there and sort of show how, uh, again, through, through our worldview, how they're interpreted. But, you know, another fascinating element of China that we wanted to, to tell, because this is so cool, was this emperor, his name is Qin Shi Huangdi, and many people just refer to him as Huangdi. And Huangdi was a very fascinating guy because he was actually pursuing the elixir of immortality. In fact, he almost bankrupted his treasury in the search for it. He sent guys off on ships to go find the immor- islands of the immortals. And, uh, and he also spent, you know, m- you know, millions of whatever they had back then. I don't know what they called it, but the, you know, millions of pounds of gold and silver, whatever, to have his alchemists, which again, you know, it's funny because the Chinese alchemists were very similar to what the Babylonian alchemists were, the Magi. They had a lot of similar concepts in astrology and such, but they have no previous connection. Anyway, so he's pursuing this elixir of immortality, which makes, to me, makes me, him a fascinating character. But what he didn't know was, and what they didn't know scientifically was, they thought at the time that, that um, um, Quicksilver, or what we now know as Mercury, and arsenic, arsenic if they gave small little amounts of that, if they ingested small amounts of that, they thought that it might prolong their life. And so they were giving this to the emperor and they didn't know that they were actually poisoning him and making him go insane. So the last years of his life, he was a mad tyrant who did some crazy things. And we bring those into the story as well, including a a final day in his final days, he was searching for sea serpents to kill. Oh, well, you know, I, I, that was a thing that popped out too, the Island of the Immortals, because that, that reminded me of the uh, Epic of Gilgamesh, because uh, what's his name? Uh, Utanapishtim or whatever ends up on yes. the island, the one the one immortal guy. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And that, you know, for myself, I, I have, the more mythology I read, the more I'm fascinated by these similarities and connections. And like like we've already spoken about, there's different ways of interpreting that, but it's still a fascinating, no matter what perspective you're coming from, to fascinating to make all these connections. By the way, uh, we got off on a tangent earlier, going back to the Tower of Babel thing, that was another connection because 
you know, the, the, the tomb that this emperor built for himself is currently underneath a mound of dirt, uh, you know, basically over the centuries. Uh, it's just dirt piled up over it. And they have not dug it out. They've left it there. But it's this huge little, it's huge little mountain of dirt. And it's actually in the shape of a ziggurat. And ziggurats are one of these phenomenon that you find all over the earth even with nations that had no connection, you cannot you cannot say that it was evolutionary because in South America they had ziggurats and they had no connection with Babylon over here. And so um, it's fascinating to me that you find the same ziggurat pattern all around the earth. And again, well, if there was some kind of original tower from which they all dispersed, maybe there's some connection going on there. You know, um, yeah, that was another another cool. Yeah, connection. There's, there's, this doesn't do with China, but there's one I, I ran into the other day, and I've seen it a bunch before. But it, it's one of those ones that I had to kind of clear my head and go, wait a second, this is weird. Have you seen that picture of, uh, it's like an old bird-headed god, and he's carrying a little basket, and no. that, so it's this is you know general stello relief, bird-headed yeah. god carrying this little basket. There's so there's a picture of one guy, bird-headed god carrying a basket, then bird-headed god carrying a basket. One's from Babylon, the other one's from South America, and it's the same friggin' handbasket. Like, it's the same design of the head. The bird, Oh, yeah, yeah. I think I have heard of that. It's, just, it's it's one of those things where it's, like, easy to kind of look past because it's like, oh, well, that's weird. But then, no, I have to sit down and go, no, 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 that's really weird. That's, that's, be- they, they didn't know each other. That's, that's not accidental, you know? Well, well, you know, as a matter of fact, too, and I mean, this is, this dispersion theory, it's not, it's not some kind of mythical thing. I mean, they, you know, there are very many scholarly uh, attempts to try to explain, uh, there's a lot of these weird connections, and this, this isn't conspiracy theorizing either. It's actual historical facts that they're trying to explain. Um, and for example, in South America, again, where they have these ziggurats, you know, I think it's, I think they're called the Olmecs. And they are the most ancient culture that they found down in South America, and they believe that they they seem to have this very similar um, morphological characteristics uh, with Asians. And so um, those Indians down in South America may have Asian origins, which means somehow they've traveled over. You know, they traveled yeah. over there. You know, I don't know, Panagia, who knows? But. Um, yeah, so some some those fascinating ca- connections, and and I make a lot of those in the Dragon King, uh, again to sort of spell out that that what I think is a sort of a supernatural connection in some way. No, it's totally, it's totally interesting. It's one of those things where I just I find it easy to gloss over, and I have to remind myself that now that is genuinely strange. Like the fact that like okay, I could see there being similar flood stories. I could see that being just. Everybody sure. came up with that same idea. I mean, it's there's a crap load of water to your left pretty much anywhere where you grew up. Okay, right. I could see a flood story coming up. But yeah. a story about a big tower where languages get dispersed from, all right, now it's starting to get a little weird. Like, there's yeah. there's some stuff where it's like the specificity of how common it is. Like, you know, this is actually leading me towards this probably is there's some kind of historical something to this because that's way too that's way too close, you know. Yeah, no, absolutely. You're you're absolutely right because there are actually um, there's there are also tales of a tower dispersion um, in the Americas as well. So yeah, and, and as well, you know, the the most ancient one I think that we know of is Sumerian, uh, and the Sumerian tale, which is not connected to the Mosaic text. You know, like Moses didn't draw from that text. He was drawing from some other sources, probably, but it's very it's very similar because Sumer was, you know, of course, 
way long before Egypt even. So uh, yeah, there are. There's these these stories that and, and this is you're right, this is where I agree with you, where they're like, okay, there are some elements of some things that of course, even like nowadays, you know, uh, as a writer in Hollywood, you know, whenever you come up with a unique idea of a script and you you write it and you try to get out there and sell it and you start finding people to start saying, oh, we already have a script like this, you know, it's like there's nothing new under the sun and a lot of ideas have been done. But when a lot of the the elements in a story are very similar, you can actually sue in Hollywood for the ripping off your story if, if you know, that's how people prove the fact that you ripped off my story is by by proving, well, these these connections – uh, that you have in your script uh, are the same. I sent you my script years ago, and then you have these same elements as mine, and that proves that you took them from mine, you know? So, but when that's going on between cultures that have no connection, that becomes very interesting. And this connection between East and West is something that we dealt, dealt with as well in The Dragon King, because the, the idea is that China didn't have connection with the, the West until like the, you know, after the first century, you know, AD. So it's like, in BC, they're completely disconnected. However, in recent years, they have discovered um, oracle bones in China, and these are basically bones uh, that they've carved in their little, you know, stories of and, and and trade and such, and 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 they've discovered that there was probably some connection between Cyrus, king of Babylon, and China because they find references to Cyrus in these oracle bones. So as a matter of fact, what we thought was the case was, you know, they didn't have connection until this, you know, first century or so. It's actually not true that they actually may have had connection with Babylon even as far back as Cyrus. Very fascinating. Maybe he was doing some trade with them. I don't know. But uh, but that's definitely another fascinating connection that um, that we bring in because – you know the 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 reason why you know the reason why there's a connection it all goes back to the Tower of Babel and and again I don't want to tell all of it so that's a lot of that's in the Dragon King but uh, yeah, yeah I'm trying to I, I'm trying to pick and choose not to give away too many details yeah. well, one, okay so question I, I guess I, let me preface this C- can I give away one of the artifacts would that be an okay thing to say out loud or is that too deep into the book uh yeah you know what well let let me give I think I know what you're talking about the artifacts uh I already said this is like a uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark is that what you're talking about yeah yeah let me I'll I'll give it away cause, oh, please because that's I I think that was that was a cool point but I'm like I don't know if I should ask anything about that because I don't know if that's like uh yeah too yeah pivotal yeah. Yeah, I don't always talk about it, but sometimes I do because you know what? People just uh, – they love it anyway. And exactly. It's really interesting. This Okay, so here's – and this was something I found by research, by the way. Again, this is legends and stuff, but the fact is is that the legends exist, and, and I didn't make this stuff up. I didn't make these connections. They're actually there, and one of the connections I found was, you know, remember again that, you know, I'm talking about the Greek – West and their king over Babylon. Babylon, the old Babylon's gone away now, and they, you know, it's just a crumbling city. People still live there, but it's not very, you know, it's 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 not the power of the earth anymore. It's the Greek Empire is, but they're over Babylon, right? And so they're, you know, they still have magi there and all this, and and I found out that in fact, I wasn't. This wasn't even going to be in the story until we was doing more research and stuff, and. You know, the Raiders of the Lost Ark and, uh, you know, all the books that have been written about what happened to the Ark and, and all that. There's tons of legends and stuff. And But one, one of the things that they don't mention there's, there, is that the, the contents of the Ark, what happened to the contents? Everyone's talking about the Ark, but the contents, there were some 
Aaron's staff was in there and a jar of manna from the wilderness was in there. And actually, I think the tables of the law as well. But nevertheless, these elements were in there, but those are completely, have a different history. And when the Jews were, went into exile in Babylon, one of the legends says, you know, that uh, I think Jeremiah or someone, uh, you know, buried the ark in a cave or something. And then, then that's how from there, you know, all the other uh, stories and legends came about on, you know, I know that there's multiple legends about where the ark is, but that's, it kind of came from there where they were taken into exile and then that's when they lost track of it. But there's actually one of the pseudepigraphal books, I think it's the book of Jubilees, but uh, one of the pseudepigraphal books is also has a legend that, that the contents of the ark went with the Jews to Babylon. And that was something that blew my mind because I thought, oh, well, that's interesting. And, and I thought, well, there's a fascinating connection. I wonder how that fit. And it, and it blew my mind because we were able to work it into our storyline that in, in a way that was just truly amazing. And again, you know, yeah, based on legends, but it, it was a cool possibility that, that some of these elements, you know, what, what, what would, what if, you know, what if these elements were really in Babylon and they were brought with them over into the Orient and what might've happened. So yeah, that's, that's the connection that we have with that sense of Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> yeah. I had not heard that. And I ended up doing a little Googling around. I was like, Oh, I didn't even, didn't even realize there were like alternate theories of like what was on the, you know, the, the what happened yeah. and stuff on the inside. I, in my head, it's all there, you know, it's, you know, yeah, you yeah, me up, too. You know? No, listen, me too. I didn't even know it. we were already working on the story and, and I actually came up, I came across, we were developing the storyline and we came up uh, against a wall with our, our plot, you know, and this was like key plot elements at the end. And I thought, Hmm, how can we solve this? I thought, well, we're making this connection with the Bible. Is there anything in the Bible we can connect up that could maybe, you know, be the answer? And, 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 and then when I found this legend, I thought, oh my gosh. And then I realized how everything fit into place. It was just, it was just amazing. Yeah. I, that, yeah. It was a fun little, again, I'm not giving anything away. Um, Staff of Aaron. I got to tell you, I know nothing about that. You want to elucidate? Because I'm pretty sure the rest of a lot of my audience doesn't either. I'm more yeah, familiar. yeah. So I, I remember the, Moses having a staff. I, remember, yeah. I seem to remember other staffs. I don't remember this one. <laughs> well, the staff of Aaron was, in, in a particular point in time in, in, the, in the Bible, uh, you know, they were still developing the priesthood and, you know, they were still, t- they had the tabernacle in the wilderness. They hadn't settled down yet in the land of Israel and they hadn't had a temple and all this. And, um, and so there were still fights over power and control within Israel and who, who were the true priests and all this. And so there's all this argument. And then, you know, got through Moses, God said, Hey, look, you know, um, I'll tell you who's going to be the real priests and who are the frauds and, you know, take the heads of the families and, uh, have them bring their staff and lay it before me. And whichever staff blooms almond blossoms, uh, the next morning or something like that, um, that, that is the priesthood that I choose. And Aaron's, uh, who was Moses' brother, he was one of the, you know, he was the one that was claiming to have the priesthood and his was the only uh, staff that blossomed, the almond blossoms. And then that sort of, that was the miracle that sort of validated the Aaronic priesthood, see? And the Aaronic, and the priesthood is very, very crucial in understanding um, this biblical paradigm because you know, the whole picture is man is is created by God, but man is also uh, uh, depraved and 
turns away from God and seeks to, you know, sort of control his own destiny or whatever and rejects God. And, and so he, he must be forgiven of that, that sin that, 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 uh, um, separates him from God. And so you, we need a priesthood, a mediator who can stand in the place and sort of offer the sacrifices that will, um, w- will, will make the expression of forgiveness and connection of God that can reconnect people. So the priesthood in there was very crucial for connecting sinful man with a holy God. And the priesthood was sort of like the middle mediator, see? And so um, that's that's something that comes into play as well in the Dragon King. But um, uh, the other element in there was another miraculous thing. There was the tables of the law as well. Uh, which you know that Moses brought down from Mount Sinai. Actually, those were destroyed and he, and they were remade. But, but nonetheless, those are, the, those are the. And I'm putting in heavy quotes the Ten Commandments. Yeah, the Ten okay, Commandments. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Uh, there were Ten Commandments, and those Ten Commandments were sort of like if you look at if you study it, you'll see the Ten Commandments are a summary, sort of like a table of contents for the rest of the law that followed. Uh, and so anyway, but then there was a, a, another jar of manna that was placed in there as a memory. And this manna was supposed to never rot. And then the, the miracle about that is, not just that it doesn't rot, but that the manna comes from the fact that when they were in the wilderness, uh, the, the Israelites, you know, uh, were didn't have food and they were hungry and crying out for help. And God made manna every morning. Manna would appear with the dew of the morning, which was sort of like a, a flaky substance that they could use to cook and create bread and all this kind of stuff. And so it was the miraculous provision of food in the desert, basically. And and they called it manna because it, the word meant, what is it? They didn't know what it was, and they, they thought it was the food of angels or something, you know. But but the thing about it was, was that it would rot at the end of the day, so it would only last long enough for them to eat, so they couldn't you know, hoard it, right? God didn't want them hoarding. He wanted him to, they wanted him, the Israelites to trust him daily. You know, that makes sense. So, but what's interesting is, but as a mem- memorial of that, God said to take some manna and place it in this, this jar and put it in the covenant or in the Ark of the Covenant and it never rotted. So it was like the opposite. It was a, a double miracle to show that God takes care of his people. That that was what the story was about. So yeah, these are some of the things that we bring in. And like you said, I find it interesting that I, I'm not aware of the fact that ever, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark is what, 25 years old. And and I don't think any, and ever, ever, ever since that movie, people have made lots of movies about other things like the search for the Holy Grail and all this stuff. But I'm not familiar with anyone who's done anything about the uh, contents of the ark. So no, no, it's it, it's sand was what I was familiar with, and that's just from that movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a, that's a cool story. Have you ever seen this? Is, uh, you know, sort of an aside, but uh, have you ever seen that guy that tried to build the mana machine based on biblical specifications? No, this no. guy went through and read the 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 account of uh, wandering the desert. And yeah. he, he used it as an interpretation of that. He, what they were describing was a machine that was sucking in moisture or dew or something and then oh. creating mana every morning. And he went through and tried to build it. It is fascinating to, to listen to the description of this because he goes through and just 
oh man, the interpretations he makes with like lines <laughs> of it. And I mean, and, and he builds a machine, like, or at least the, the, the sketch of one. It's, yeah. it's pretty wild. If you, if you ever have any time on your hands, it's, it's well worth looking at. <laughs> it, it sounds like the ancient aliens theory, you know, where they yeah. think that all the things that happened in the Bible were actually aliens. And, and like the Ark of the Covenant was actually a radio that would connect with the aliens up in their astro and their, uh, uh, flying ships, you know, and, uh, that kind of stuff, which is amusing to say the least. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the the, the Nephilim or the the genetic, the the uh, genetically engineered uh, yes. aliens. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. Some I don't. I find I found that stuff pretty funny, you know, on the surface level. I'm not going to read too deep into it, but yeah, it's it's an amusing theory. It's overly complicated, it's, which I always like. Yeah, yeah but it, you know, and and again, it does make for fascinating stories. You know, Zechariah yeah. Sitchin and all these guys. And look, it goes back to what you and I were talking about earlier, and that is there. It's it's another attempt to address the facts that we have these commonalities between all religions, commonalities of artifacts all around the world, which, by the way, <clears throat> um, you know, if you research the ancient astronauts, ancient aliens theories, there's plenty of uh, debunking websites. A lot of that stuff is is bogus crap, but there's still some truth to the similarities, right? And so it's really simply, it, it shows you the power of presuppositions. And what that means is, is whatever, whatever worldview we commit to um, <clears throat> is our bias, and we tend to reinterpret our experiences and facts through that grid. So if you've got this hyper-scientific worldview that believes that there can be no supernatural, everything has to have a natural explanation, and therefore um, strange things that occurs could be from, or, or even what we think to be uh, angelic beings could actually be real beings that are so superior to us that we think they're spirits, but they're really just highly evolved uh, life forms, biological life forms that come from another planet. You know, this is a, you know, obviously, you know, this started with Carl Sagan, but now, you know, people believe it and stuff. And it, but it, you know, within their paradigm, that's how they interpret it. Because uh, again, your worldview uh, can, can dictate and, and gives you the spin for how you're going to interpret the facts. So they're going to look at these religious commonalities and say, well, Here's how we can explain them because aliens visited the earth. Mankind was ignorant. Therefore, they interpreted aliens because of their ignorance. They interpreted them as the gods. And since the aliens connected all over the world, that's how these things that we think were miracles were actually advanced technology. Because after all, uh, uh, you know, ignorant, uneducated man often thinks that science and technology are miraculous, right? And so it all makes sense within their paradigm in a way. But again, I think it's just a, another proof of the fact that you can have the same facts and depending on your worldview, you can interpret it completely differently consistently within your little worldview, you know? Yeah. That's a, I mean, I, I say that talking to anybody of a different view or yeah, know, actually, especially people that I agree with. I just, I like to stress the point of like, just keep in mind we're being biased even by, you know, like even saying I'm open-minded, that's a bias towards open-mindedness. Like this, yes, that is a bias. Yeah, yeah. Listen, I'm totally in agreement with you. And, and I, I support that even, again, for Christians like myself. It's like we have to be aware of our biases no matter who we are. And, and that makes us more fair to other people and more respectful of them, even if it just makes you more humble so that maybe you're not so uh, whatever. 
harsh and and cruel to other people with what they with, with what they believe, but that you realize, well, you know, I've got bias and spin too, and I need to be aware of my own blind because whatever your glasses, like if you think of your worldview as a pair of glasses through which you look out at the world and interpret it, your rose-colored glasses will <clears throat> will block out things that are rose-colored. So you you'll see things that other people can't, but then you will miss things that your glasses uh, blind you to that other people's glasses don't. So, so this is how we can say, well, look, you know, um, maybe, maybe I need to listen to what other people's worldviews are saying and learn something from them, you know, to apply and find my own blind spots. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. Even for Christians, you know, does, they don't have to be all fundamentalists who just say, well, we have the only truth and, you know, everything that, you know, everything in the Bible is literal. And if you, if, you know, if you deny it, then you're, you know, you're going to hell and all that kind of stuff. I mean, no, no, it doesn't have to be that way at all. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that's a, I mean, that's a hell of a good point. That's a, that's a thing we can take home. <laughs> like, keep yeah, it, I mean, keep I've it, learned a lot from atheists, yeah. man. I've learned a lot of facts from atheists, and I've learned facts that about the Bible that Christians were afraid to tell me about, so they, so they didn't tell me, and they were dishonest. And and so you know now I would I I've read a lot of facts from atheists that I don't agree with their interpretation or their spin on the facts, but it forced me to have to say wow you know there are things that don't fit into what I'm what I believe and and I've got to I've got to be if I want to be honest and uh, if I if I want to seek truth I got to be willing to face those things that cause me trouble in my own belief system and you know seek to understand them in a, in a, in, a, in a better way. Yeah, and you know, you can't define yourself only by that one, like, the totality of knowledge can't be in that one book, especially when you're on Skype, you know, <laughs> you know there's no computers in, in, the, in the Old or the New Testament. So, you know, it's the, the totality of knowledge isn't there. So, you know, we have to, by default, living, living in the world we do now, keep a bit of an open mind. <laughs> Unless the Ark of the Covenant was yeah, a yes. magical computer. Yeah, it's early Skype technology. Early Skype, yeah. yeah. But uh, yeah, that that's I think a damn fine note to end on. Brian, why don't you tell everybody where they can find your stuff, uh, the name of things, uh, whatever you want to tell them. Sure, um, Gadawa.com is my my uh, warehouse uh, website. Look, I got a lot of cool stuff there for people who want to learn more about the series Chronicles of the Nephilim, Chronicles of the Watchers. I, I explain synopsis of all my books. I'm also an artist, so I have a lot of artwork on there and a lot of cool articles related to the material and just. I made a I made a website that would be really interactive and that people could really enjoy and it's not just a stupid boring selling you know website but go there to find any information you want and all my books are on audiobook and Kindle and paperback everything's at Amazon uh, but when you go to the website too uh, sign up for the Godawa Chronicles newsletter because I have articles on all these weird things in the Bible and also things related to my novels I give out a lot of free freebies to fans and discounts only to fans only a lot of, I try to interact a lot with the fans who, who love my stuff uh, to make it really worth their while so yeah Godawa.com is where everything's at oh fantastic All right, well th uh, thank you very much for coming on again Ryan uh, th very much appreciate it thanks for having me Alex <laughs>